Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. You all right? Yes, thank you. You had a good time in Madolva? Yes, it was. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Very fulfilling. Good. And they'll let you come back? Yeah, and the church sends the greetings to you. Right, okay. Thank you. Good. Good. But good to see you. Looking well? Yeah, thank you. Good. Let's come to God in prayer for a moment or two. Let's uh, just be still. Last week, I introduced the uh, Thy Kingdom Come prayer initiative that uh, takes place initially within the Anglican Church, but has been taken on by many Christians over the last few years, just to pray between the Ascension and Pentecost, just to pray God's kingdom to come, with a specific idea that we should be praying for five people. Five people to come and to know the Lord Jesus Christ, for God's kingdom to come into their situations and their circumstances. Maybe just for a moment we can pause and just think of the people that we meet around the, during the week. Perhaps there are five people that are on our hearts that we just want to name them this morning in the presence of God. They might be family members. They might be friends. They might be neighbours. They might be work colleagues. I just simply say, Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come in these people's lives. Open their eyes, Lord, that they might see your kingdom, your love, your mercy, your grace. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, so you would speak to us through your word, that you would grant us a glimpse into history, into the world in which we live, into the world in which you see, and into the world in which you are active, that we might see something of your sovereignty, something of your lordship, something of your work within the world around us. Father, we recognise that we live within a world with many, many problems. Father, there are wars, there are famines. Yes, there are earthquakes. 
every strata of society seems to be struck with struggles and heartaches and pain. Even within our own nation, we seem to be split down the middle over the direction that we should be be taking. Father, we look around us and we see people struggling. People struggling with addictions. People struggling with a sense of failure and of guilt and of shame. And yet we come this morning proclaiming that you are Lord. And that there will come a day when you will wipe every tear from their eyes. Help us to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, open our eyes as you open the eyes of John to behold the things that must soon take place, bringing about your eternal kingdom, the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, we're back into the book of Revelation. And, uh, yeah, we're looking at some of the middle chapters, chapters 6 through to 11. We'll be, be drawing from, 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 from these chapters. And we'll read a few, a few bits in a, in a few moments. Back in the 1970s, we uh, I grew up in South Northamptonshire, and we were not far from the Upper Hayford American Air Base. And back in the, the late 1970s, Carol and I got friendly with a number of couples off of the the base, the airport base there, and they became very close friends. And I remember one couple who we were very close to. One weekend, they just announced that they were going up to Scotland. And they duly went up to Scotland on uh, the Friday, and they came back on the Monday. And forever afterwards, they said, we've done Scotland. (laughs) I think they went up to Edinburgh. They went up to... Loch Ness, they went up to uh, Oban. They did quite a bit, but forever afterwards, I don't think they ever returned to Scotland because they'd done it. And there's, there's, there's parts of me that feels a little bit like that as we come into Revelation, that this is a whistle-tops tour. You know, and when you go on a whistle-stop tour, tour you, you come to points and you think, I wish I could get off here and I wish I could have a look here. I wish I could stop and, 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 and gaze at the view but it's not possible because you're moving on and there's that sense of, of, of speed about it and I'm conscious about that. I'm conscious that th- this is a whistle-stop stop tour and we're not going to be stopping off at all the, all the places on the route by any stretch of the imagination because what I want us to do is to be, have the bigger picture And I believe sometimes that's all that God wants us to have is that bigger picture. I love going up into the Lake District and and walking in the fells. And I love going up into the fells. 
And often you can find, your, find yourself in a point on the fells where you're looking out over the fells and outstretched before you, uh, well, one fell after another and there's a tarn and there's a lake and there's a mountains and there's mountains there and there's mountains there. And you want to just take in the breadth and the wonder of that landscape. There's part of me that's not really interested as to what that peak is or what that tarn is or what that fell is. It's just the breathtaking view of everything that is there before you. And there's that sense in which we come to the book of Revelation. Just to remind ourselves, we're living life with the end in sight. Snapshots in Revelation. Just to remind ourselves at the beginning of this, this letter... The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, in a sense, you know, there's part of me that uh, struggles a little bit with that. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who are here. I hope you are, as we do go through it. I have to confess that as I come to it, often during the week, I struggle with it. I struggle with the concepts. I struggle with the images. I struggle with what I believe it's trying to say. Because, it, in a sense, it's that bigger picture but we're told that we're blessed. Revelation and unveiling to show what must soon take place. A five-link chain from God to Jesus to an angel to John and to us. These visions come. John is called to write what he sees. Verses, one, verses 11 and 19 of chapter 1. I know I've stressed that, but I think we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. John is called to be a word artist, to paint pictures with words. You could almost say he's called to be an abstract painter, whose truth and power lie not in the meaning of every brushstroke across the canvas, but in the overall effect of the picture, the overall effect of the picture that he's painting. As we stand back, and admire the view. I'm not one for art galleries, I'll be honest. Carol enjoys going to them, but occasionally I'll go. And I remember going one time up in, up in London National Gallery, and there was a small group of people. They were standing in front of this picture. And they were obviously, uh, they were obviously in deep, deep conversation discussing a particular part of the painting. I don't know what it was now. It may have been just the shape of somebody's hand or, or, or whatever it was, or the significance of an action of, of somebody. And I just wanted to scream, stand back and see the picture. Stand back and see the whole. And there's a sense of that with the Rev book of Revelation. We can get ourselves so tied up in knots over the brushstrokes that we lose the picture. We lose the vision. 
that John is trying to put across. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and it was like, and it was like, and it was like, all through this letter. Now, over this weekend, in two weeks' time, we're probably looking at some of the most difficult passages in Scripture. Revelations chapter 6 through to 16. We're going to be looking at seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven symbols and seven bowls. Seven is a, is, a, is a number pertaining to perfection within the book of Revelation. And we're just going to delve into those, into what they mean and the implications of them. Now we know that John was writing to a particular situation and circumstance. He was writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches who were dominated by the might of the Roman Empire. Seven churches who were struggling, who were poor, who were seeking to, to, to hold on to their Christian faith in the strength of, of, of persecution. Churches who didn't know what the future was going to hold. Churches who were being called to compromise in any and every direction. But churches that that valiantly held on, valiantly held on to their faith. But Revelation is more than speaking to these seven churches. Revelation needs to be applied to every Christian in every age and in every culture because it is a letter to the church, the letter to the churches, to you and to me, to all of us. And perhaps one of the most important keys for the understanding of this letter is to recognise that the visions it describes are parallel rather than consecutive pictures of history. Many people have spent many, many hours trying to put a chronological order into these visions, into these pictures, into these images. And it's not there. What is very much like is, and the only the analogy that I can use really, is that if you're, how can we say, the uh, European Cup final last night, you're watching it. And first of all, you're watching it from the pitch side, the camera from the pitch side. It's got the vision from the pitch side. And then suddenly you're up in the stands and you're watching it and you're looking down on it. From, from, from the stands. And from the next time you're behind the goal and you're watching it from behind the goal. What John is doing is painting pictures of history from different angles and from different perspectives. And he's bringing the truth of God into history. And so it seems that, yes, he runs the reel, but then he goes back and he runs the reel again. And as we look at the seven seals, and as we look at the seven trumpets, and as we look at the seven bowls, you will find that there's a whole series of calamities that happen. But they all end up, they all end up at one point. The final coming of Christ, and final judgment on the earth. It's as if he's gone back, and he's seeing it from a different perspective. Some commentators would say that, yes, the seven seals are looking at it from the church's view, from the view of the church. Others would say that the seven trumpets are looking from it from the unrepentant world's view, 
and the seven bowls are looking at it from heaven's view. Different perspectives, different views, different angles that we're looking at. And yes, there's a lot in here. Last week we looked at Christ in heaven and Christ on earth. The one one who simultaneously walks among his church and who stands at the centre of the throne, the centre of all things. Let's read a little bit. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and to look inside. We've had this glorious vision in chapter 4 of the one seated upon the throne, of God upon the throne, holding the scroll, And no one is found worthy. No one is found worthy to open this scroll. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. But he holds the scroll. And then then a lamb steps forward. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne. Verse 7, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And with that action, we read in chapter 5, there's this whole wave of worship that begins at the centre of the throne and goes out and out and out, gathering in the whole of creation, in the praises of the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. But then chapter 6 begins. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given the crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. And then subsequent to that, there comes the opening of various seals, the opening of the second seal in verse 3, the opening of the third seal in verse 5, the opening of the seventh seal in verse... In, in, in the, the fourth seal in verse 7, the opening of the fifth seal in verse 9, and uh, the sixth seal in verse 12. And then there's an interlude in chapter 7 before the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8. What we have at the beginning here is what has become known as the, the four horses of the apocalypse, known by many artists have a white horse coming forth and, it's, and, and on it its rider is known as the one who is, who is as a conqueror bent on conquest we'll come back to him in a moment then there's a fiery red horse bringing strife and civil unrest to the world then there is a black horse bringing famine economic unrest he holds a pair of scales in his hands then there's a power, pale horse the death Unchecked horrors, bringing unchecked horrors on the world. Then we come into the fifth seal. 
And we see the souls of the church's martyrs there underneath the altar, crying out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Verse 10. And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. It's a dramatic scene. It's a horrific scene. And then with the opening of the sixth seal, there's that picture of cosmic terror coming in verses 12 to 17. Where in verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? There's that multi, multi, that crowd who'd rather let the rocks fall on them than face the Lord Almighty. Do you notice any parallels there? There's parallels in these images of the seals, in the words of Jesus. If you look back, <coughs> if you look back into Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24, to be precise, Jesus is speaking about the times to come. And he's saying to his disciples very, very clearly in verses 4 to 14, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, you will see but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And it goes on through that passage. You see, it's a picture of world history, isn't it? In the opening of these seals, it's a picture of world history. We have been very fortunate in my generation here in Western Europe. We have lived in probably the most peaceful time there has ever been. We have become comfortable in it. We have become complacent in it. But all through history, this has been the story of history. Wars, rumours of wars, famines, earthquakes... Cosmic dimensions, strife and stress, man against man. But what does it say to us? It says to us very clearly that Jesus is at the heart of it. The seven seals show us what God allows in his world, since these things only happen when Christ breaks the seals. You see, if we believe in a sovereign God, if we believe in a God who is Lord over all, then he's got to be Lord over all or he's, or he's not Lord at all. He has to be Lord over everything. And that brings me back to this first horse. 
Many commentators would just simply say that this white horse is, yes, one of the horses of the apocalypse going out to conquest and conquer. But there are differences. Just for a moment, just think of those differences. Throughout Revelation, white stands for righteousness. Crowns and conquest belong to Christ. And in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 15, the rider of the white horse is named Faithful and True, the Word of God, and even King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So may this first horse, this first rider, be Jesus Christ, riding at the head of the cavalcade of history, resolved to win the nations by the power of the gospel, Resolve to win the nations by the power of the gospel. That Christ is there in the heart of history. It's a point worth thinking about. But these opening dramas of the six seals give us a general overview of history between the first coming and second coming of Christ. Some commentators have, have uh, referred to this period of history as being a bit like D-Day and V-Day. Now we're coming up, aren't we, to celebration on the 6th of June. There, yeah, 75 years or, whatever it, or whatever, whatever it is. But that point where def defeat of the enemy was claimed and victory was complete, the defeat of our enemy happened at Calvary. But victory will not be complete until Christ returns again and brings all things under his feet and has placed all things under his feet. And it's an interesting fact that actually between those two dates, which is just less than 12 months, uh, D-Day and V-E-Day, there were more casualties there were more ferocious battles. The battles became more intense. The battles became fiercer and more wanton and more destructive. As in a sense, we could say the enemy knew they were defeated. And many view this period of history very similarly. And what we have here is a picture of what goes on in history. And if we were to turn, if we were to turn to the seven, the seven trumpets in chapter 8, this is because we're going to just leave the chapter 7 for a moment. Chapter 8, when the seventh seal is open, seven angels step forward with seven trumpets. Now, through scripture, trumpets are often used, but one of the main principal reasons for trumpets being used is a warning. Warning people. It was, you know, you know, a big sound that could warn a city of imminent attack or the enemy was in sight. But then we have here the sounding of various trumpets. Then the seven angels in verse 6 of chapter 8 
who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees was burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned to blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. Yes, there's a whole series of disasters. Environmental disasters, chapter one, trumpet one. Economic chaos, trumpet two. Human tragedy, trumpet three. Cosmic calamity, trumpet four. Plagues of locusts, trumpet five. Violent death, trumpet six. The plague of locusts are interesting. Note that we're not to take these literally. Note we're not to take them literally. And many different interpretations are put on them that the release of some demonic horde that comes to terrify the world. But another meaning that could come into it, and maybe it's one that we need to just think a little bit about it, maybe these locusts are symbolic of human depravity. Because it's out of the heart Jesus wrote, there comes lust, there comes greed, there comes selfishness. There comes all sorts of evil. And isn't it out of the heart that so much of the world's pain originates? And isn't it so often that actually that we, yes, we're terrorised by our guilty conscience, by our addictions, by our defeats, by our failures. They whittle us and they whittle us and they nab us and they bite us and they, they're there. Came across a little cartoon this week of somebody in prayer. And they were praying very, very earnestly and they were saying, Lord, smite my enemies. And nothing happened. And uh, then they said, Lord, smite my worst enemy. And then there's the picture of him still praying. He said, Lord, can I rephrase that, please? As a whole form of locusts buzzing around him. Buzzing around him. Realising that so much of his own issues were himself. You see, there's a struggle in terms of sometimes we interpreting these images. But these disasters are all limited in their impact, suggesting that they are warnings. Suggesting that they're warnings. That this might be God's way of calling an unresponsive world to repentance. You see, as C.S. Lewis puts it, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And there are parallels here to the plagues in, e in Egypt. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, there are parallels in these trumpets to those plagues. 
And what were those plagues meant to be? They were meant to bring the Egyptians to repentance and to release the Israelites. And we read here in towards the end of chapter 10, there at the end of the, the, the sixth angel sounding his trumpet, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. There's a sense that these trumpet sounds, they're warnings. They're warnings of the coming judgment, they're warnings of the coming ultimate judgment and lead on to that. Because there's a seventh trumpet in chapter 11 is blown. It brings in, it brings in that final, that final judgment. It says in verse uh, 18, the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. What we have here in the seven trumpets describes how God warns the world and summons the world to repentance. We talk about environmental catastrophe. That's on the agenda at the moment, isn't it? That God's warning. That's God's warning. You need to repent of how you use my world. You need to change your behaviour. You need to stop exploiting it. God's warnings. But in the midst between these seals, these seals and these trumpets, we have chapter 7. And what do we have there? And uh, yeah, time is passing, but it's almost as if John is saying, or the Revelation is saying, okay, you've seen all that. You've seen all that. Now turn your vision. Turn your vision. This is your hope. This is what we're working towards. This is where we're heading. This is what will be. And we have a glimpse into heaven. We have a glimpse into eternity. We have a glimpse into the glory of God's presence. And we have the sealing of God's people in verses 1 to 8. 144,000 is symbolic, denoting not limitation but completeness. That's the meaning behind that number. It's not some like the JWs who think, well, that's only the number that's going to be here in heaven. A seal is an ancient mark of ownership. So Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit as belonging to God. Now it is to God who makes us both you and stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And there's this image of the angels going out and sealing the whole totality of God's people, sealing them by his spirit. 
Verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. If we were to move, had time to move into chapter 22, we would find that the redeemed have the name of their Saviour on their foreheads. The name of their Saviour on their foreheads. So there's that, that, there's that symbolic picture of completeness. But then we have this image of the sounding of God's praise in verses 9 to 17, an inspiring passage by a vast multitude that no one can count. In many respects, it's the same multitude as 144,000, but in a sense, put in a different context, in a different way for us to see. Drawn from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And this multitude, in verse 10, they're saved by God's grace. They're cleansed by God's atoning by Christ's atoning sacrifice, in verse 14. And they have come through the tribulation, in verse 14. Now I want to dare to say that we're all in the tribulation. Not a time to come. It's that time. It's that time that we're in now. This is the tribulation. What is it? What is it that James writes in, uh, and I haven't got this written down, but if I could quickly turn to it. What is it that James writes? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, under tribulation. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. They've come through the tribulation. They've persevered. That's you and me. The chapter ends with glorious assurance that God will shelter his people, that, he will never again, that they will never again suffer from thirst, hunger or scorching heat. That in the boldest of reversals of roles, the lamb will become the shepherd. And God will wipe away every tear. There's something on the one hand, yes, of the horrors. The horrors of the seals and the horrors of the trumpets. But actually in the midst of it all is the reassurance. The reassurance of ultimate reality. Of God bringing things together. There. Let me read these words. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb, the lamb at the centre of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God he will wipe away every tear
every tear, every tear from their eyes. That is the destiny that awaits us. But in the present, we still live in a time when the battle rages. But we know who is victor. We know who is Lord. The Lamb that was slain. Let us pray. Father, we recognise that it's been a tough session. We recognise that there are things here that we do not fully understand, that we cannot fully grasp. We're dealing with concepts, we're dealing with ideas. But this we know, that you are on the throne. And there at the centre of the throne is a lamb. looking as if he was slain. And he is the one who is worthy to receive our praise. For he is able and worthy to open the seals and to fulfil your purposes for humanity and the world that you have created. He is our living hope. He is our Lord. He is our Saviour. He is our coming King. He is the Lord of history. Amen.